I would ask this morning if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. So we are beginning a new study here this morning after finishing the book of Jonah last week. We'll be looking at Revelation chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3 this morning. Revelation chapter 1 and verses 1 to 3. Brothers and sisters, if you then would please hear with me the reading of God's inspired and inerrant Word. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending His angel to His servant John, who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that He saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope that all of you are, are very much looking forward to our study in the book of Revelation because I know, I know that I am. Uh, but I also hope that as we approach the book, we are all looking forward to, to reading and studying this book for similar reasons. Uh, because the book of Revelation uh, is not to be viewed as uh, some sort of you know, 100,000 piece jigsaw puzzle that we are going to be trying to put together. Okay? If that's what you think that we're going to be doing, you're going to be highly disappointed. Um, I can already tell you ahead of time in advance, I'll give you this little nugget for free. When we get to chapter 9 and we look at the locusts, they are not going to be Apache helicopters. Okay? What I can also advise you would be that as we read and study the book of Revelation, it's not a good idea to be watching the 10 o'clock news with the book of Revelation open and be trying to tie world events that are occurring now right with the book. Those are things we ought not to be doing. But if you have come and you approach the book because you want to learn about how God rules over the world right, and how God rules over all of human history and has triumphed over every one of His enemies and is bringing all things to consummation in His Son and our Savior Jesus Christ, then you will be richly blessed and benefited by our study, by the grace of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Right? We need to see that this book was not just a book intended for the church in the first century. Neither is this book primarily for a church that is going to be here in the advanced future, immediately preceding the return of Christ. But rather, as you come here, as you gather every Sunday, we need to see that the book of Revelation is for this church as well. Right? Just as it was for the church in the 5th century and 10th century and 15th century. When I say church, I mean just the Christian church 
universally speaking. Because this, brothers and sisters, is a book that addresses those issues that affect every church that we're going to see continually throughout history, from the first century to the 21st century and beyond. Right? What this book does for us is it details for us the spiritual warfare, the spiritual battle that we as Christians are engaged in and will continue to be engaged in until the second advent of Christ. We also, though, need to see as we approach this book, though, that not only is it describing it to us from almost a lens from being on earth, and when I say that, I mean from a, from a, a church kind of verse the world, a, a battle there going on. It also details us this book from almost a, a heavenly perspective as well as really the battle going on behind the scenes between God and the devil. Right? This is what we're going to see going on in our text. And so the purpose of this book right, is given to be an encouragement to the church. Right? Given to be encouragement. Although you will suffer tribulation, right? although things oftentimes will seem to not be going the church's way, Right? Too often it's going to look like it's going the devil's way. What with the church, what we need to realize, what we need to recognize, what we need to understand is that God has already won the battle in Jesus Christ. Right? That Jesus Christ is a lamb who presently reigns today on his throne in heaven and will come to bring consummation where he will then establish the new heavens and the new earth. And all of you, who continue in the faith steadfast and true until the end, will be conquerors with Christ when He returns. Brothers and sisters, this is largely the message of the book of Revelation. This is largely the message of the book of Revelation. But this is also one reason why I also feel totally inept to teach this book to you. I feel totally inadequate to be standing up before you preaching this book, but at the same time, I feel so compelled to do it because of what I just said the purpose of the book is. That is why I feel compelled to do it. Because we need to hear what this book has to say to us about Christ. Right? We need to hear what this book has to say to us about the church. We need to hear the rebuke of this book. We need to hear about the church's failings and how we are to repent of them and to return to Christ. Right? We, we need to also hear the encouragement that this book gives us. To be reminded that no matter how bad things may seem to be, no matter how ungodly things seem to be getting around us, no matter how many fewer people identify as Christian today than they did just 20 years ago, we need to know that God has a plan. God has a plan through it all and He is working His plan out perfectly. And so Christ right now is reigning on His throne. And so you as a Christian have no reason to fear, no reason to fret, no reason to, fer- to worry or be anxious. And God right now is guiding His church to springs of living water. Right? Christ right now is walking amongst His church. He sees all that is taking place. And He is comforting His church. He is guiding His church. He is directing His church. He is preserving His church. Church, therefore, there is hope for God's people in every single generation until He returns. Brothers and sisters, what I see is that too often we are driven away from the book of Revelation by fear. 
Right now, I'm sure if I, I polled everyone here and I said, probably, what's the, what's the least new, what's the least read book in the New Testament amongst the church? It's probably going to be Revelation. And why is it going to be that? Right? Because for the most part, I think most people feel that we can't really know what the book is saying. Or they, they can't be sure that we can know the true meaning of the text. And so they maybe read over it a couple times, but, you know, they leave that for the academics and, and they read the epistles or the gospels, right? Those, those are the things that are for them. But I want you to understand that, that you can know the meaning, right? That it was written for you to know the meaning. Now, it isn't to say that we aren't going to run up into incredibly difficult texts. And we actually might not know the meaning, but that's not because the meaning isn't revealed. It's, it's a fault on, on our behalf that we can't deter, understand the meaning. Right? But, so we're going to run into very difficult text. Uh, in our study of the book of Revelation, we are going to be stretched mightily as we study this book. Um, everything in here is not as clear as uh, in other parts of the book. But we must come to the book. We must approach the book together, believing that God has written it for us, His people, to understand. I mean, brothers and sisters, it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? That word revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis. Right? That's where we get the word apocalypse, the English word apocalypse. And what does that word apocalypse mean? An unveiling. An uncovering, a, a revealing. That is the book that God has given to us. A revealed book. When we make it a puzzle book, right, we do the very opposite. But this is not what God has intended. He wants us to understand what the book of Revelation is about. And He wants every generation to know what it is about. Now yes, throughout this book He uses symbols. This book actually we can consider a picture book. Right? The book of Revelation is a picture book. Right? But those symbols and those pictures can be interpreted so long as we interpret them through the lens of Scripture. Right? We interpret Scripture with Scripture to understand the symbols and the pictures. And we allow Scripture to bring out the meaning of those things, which we will do, or at least try to do, attempt to do, in our own study. Because if you don't, what's going to end up happening, brothers and sisters, is you are going to plunge yourself into some wildly bizarre understandings of the text. And you're going to end up missing the great significance of what Christ is saying to his church. Now, this morning, we are only going to consider the prologue to this book. But I believe this sets us up very uh, nicely going forward. Because in the prologue, what we are going to see is that we are told how we are to read the book. Right from the very beginning, we are told how we are to read the book. We are also told who the book is intended for. We are also told when we are to expect these things to be realized. And also we are given a blessing, which ought to excite every single one of us to continue to return every Sunday, right, to read and to hear this book, for God promises to bless us as we do. Now as we look over these three verses, and there are four points that I want to flesh out for us this morning, Uh, that will help to propel us then moving forward in our study. And I think that these four points, so we got to get a good grasp on them because they are are key for a right understanding of the book of Revelation moving forward. And so the first point this morning will be the nature of the book of Revelation. The nature of the book of the Revelation. 
Now, brothers and sisters, we've gone over some of this in Sunday school leading up to this. Uh, we have said already that the book of Revelation is of a mixed genre. Right? We said that it makes up, it's apocalyptic, right? it's prophetic, and it's an epistle, or it's, it's a letter. When we said it's apocalyptic, we, we meant right, there was a great escalation or a heightening in prophecy. You have these wild symbols. Oftentimes apocalyptic literature is associated with some sort of kind of pessimism about God's rule today. Um, also, with apocalyptic literature, there's usually some um, cosmic, cataclysmic event that kind of occurs that ushers in uh, God's eternal kingdom. Uh, we also said that this book is prophetic. Now, when we say prophetic, we have to understand prophetic in, in two ways. Uh, the, the word prophecy doesn't always have to mean something future. Prophecy can also just mean the divine word. And so this is a, a prophetic text. But it's also an epistle, we said. It, it begins as a letter. It ends as a letter. It even says to write a letter to the seven churches. So, so this is also a letter. Now let me ask you something. If we approach the book of Revelation and have never read a letter before, a Christian letter, where would you go to? You would turn to other Christian letters, wouldn't you? Right? You might look to the, Paul, the Pauline epistles or something to, to understand What's the nature of a Christian letter? How are we to read it? How are we to understand a letter? You're going to look to letters. The same is the case with, with prophetic literature, right? We're going to go back and we're going to look at prophetic literature to see how are we to uh, uh, understand prophecy if it's the first time we, we've understood it and we come to the book of Revelation. And in fact, we, we did that when we looked at the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Mark not too long ago. Right? We looked at some of those prophetic passages and how we are to interpret and understand them. Uh, so what I submit to you is that we ought to also do the same thing with apocalyptic literature, right? That doesn't seem unreasonable, does it? Now, this type of literature, apocalyptic literature, uh, was more broadly used in the 2nd century B.C. to the 2nd century A.D. And I think this explains why we today as Christians have such a difficult time right, interpreting it in the, in the 21st century. But what we have to be careful not to do is to, to impose a foreign hermeneutic upon this type of literature and ever believe that we are going to come to a right understanding of the text. But I think that this is what's being done. Let me give you an example of what I mean. For the last, say, 150 years, right, futurism has really uh, been the, 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 the dominant or the prevalent means of understanding or viewing the book of Revelation. And what does futurism say? It says that when you come to the text of Revelation, you come with a, a literal hermeneutic, right? We read everything literal. You only don't read something literal, right? You only read it non-literal when you are forced to read it non-literal. Otherwise, everything else is literal. But if I might suggest to you, I think that this is one of the problems. Uh, because you come to the text believing everything has to be read literally. This is why as we looked over the different views, they see everything from chapter 4 of Revelation and, and further as being future. Because as they come to the text with that literal hermeneutic, they say, we've never seen these things before. Right? These things have never taken place. Those things have to be something that, that occur far into the distant future because that's not something that, that we see or that we think we're going to see anytime soon. And so I want us to see how starting off with the wrong understanding of the nature of the book can lead you down a treacherous path of almost exclusively making this book 
future and saying almost nothing to the church today. That's how quick we can get lost. But this is why, brothers and sisters, we must allow the Scripture to tell us how to interpret itself. And I think John does that for us in our text today. Okay, He tells us how we are to read the book of Revelation from the very outset. Now, I know you're looking at me saying, Preacher, what are you, what are you reading from? I don't see anywhere that he says in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, how we are to read the book of Revelation. Where do you get that from? Where is that coming from? Well, I say that he is, he is demonstrating for us how we are to read the text from the outset because of what he alludes to in verse 1. Revelation 1.1 is an allusion to Daniel chapter 2. Now, when I say an allusion, what I mean by allusion is that the, the words used are identical or they're similar or they convey a similar idea that is uniquely traceable to an Old Testament text. Right? So that's what I mean when I say allusion. And so here in verse 1 of chapter 1, we have an allusion back to Daniel chapter 2. So if you'd like to, feel free to turn with me to Daniel 2. But keep your finger in Revelation. Keep your finger in Revelation where you have it. Now just kind of as a, as a brief background, in Daniel 2, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar has, has a vision. Um, and he's, he's troubled by this vision. And he needs and wants someone to interpret this vision for him. Uh, none of the kind of magicians or wizards at his time are able uh, or want to interpret it because they're asking, will you tell us, tell us what the vision is and then we'll interpret it. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You tell me what the vision is and then you interpret it. Right? And so Daniel ends up praying to the Lord and asks, you know, for him to, to show, to show him what this uh, vision is so that he might reveal it uh, to King Nebuchadnezzar. So that's that's kind of the background, the context of Daniel 2. Now look with me here in Daniel 2 and verse 28. All right, as he's as he's saying this, all right, he tells Nebuchadnezzar, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Now that word made known can also be translated and is translated in the Greek Septuagint as, as show. Right? So, so we could read it this way as well. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has shown to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days? Now, flip back to Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things that must soon come to pass. Now you say, okay, I can kind of see, he says, right, to, to show what must happen in the latter days, to, to show what must happen, or to show what must soon come to pass. But But they're not 
that's similar. One says the latter days. One says things that must surely come to pass. But this is, brothers and sisters, where we need to understand development and progressive revelation. Right? John is telling us that the fulfillment of what Daniel is saying in chapter 2 has begun in his day. Right? He's saying what Daniel said was not going to occur until the latter days is happening now in his day. Right? The defeat of evil and the establishment of God's kingdom, John expects to happen quickly in this generation. Right? That is what he is saying. This word to show also can mean to show by a sign. Right? That's kind of the, what it conveys. To show by a sign. And it's an idea of symbolic communication. Right? God made known a vision of the future to Nebuchadnezzar by symbolic pictorial visions. We don't have time today to, to go over it and read it, but I encourage you, go back and read Daniel 2. The vision that God gives Nebuchadnezzar is this. He gives him a vision of a statue that's composed of four sections of four different metals. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Then we're told that the statue is smashed by a rock that grew to be a mountain that filled the earth. How does Daniel interpret it? How does Daniel interpret it? Does Daniel use a literal hermeneutic to interpret these pictorial, symbolic visions that God has given to him? Nope. No, he does not. He says each section of the vision represents a kingdom. The last kingdom of which God is going to come and destroy to set up his everlasting kingdom. So what we need to see at the very outset is that in Revelation 1.1, this allusion made to Daniel 2 is not accidental, but it was intentional. It was intentional. He's telling us, look back to Daniel 2. Look at the vision that, that Daniel received and look at how it was interpreted. Not with a literal hermeneutic, but with a non-literal, a figurative hermeneutic. That is how Daniel interpreted the symbolic vision that was given to King Nebuchadnezzar. And that is how we are to interpret this vision that is given to John. That's how he's directing us. He's telling us from the very outset, by alluding to Daniel 2, this is how you are to read the rest of this book. Too often, brothers and sisters, we are told that when you read the book of Revelation, if the symbolism is not explained to you, you must read it literally. But we need to see that is turned upside down. right? That is turned on its head. That is not the way in which we are to read the book of Revelation. We are to read it symbolically, non-literally. Now, the argument will be, but preacher... What you're doing is you're kind of just giving everyone the ability to just run away with interpretations of the symbols and pictures. Or you can't do that. It's safer to, to, to interpret these things literally. But I would say to you, no, it's not. Right? Not if we keep interpreting Scripture with Scripture like we do all along. So that what? In the book of Revelation, when we have a symbol that is, that's explained to us, 
and then you have it spoken again later on and it's not explained to you, right? you interpret it the same way that it was explained to you earlier. I'll give you an example. The lampstands that are spoken of in Revelation 1, or 2, in 1 and 2 were told are churches. So guess what? In Revelation 11, when lampstands are spoken of again, but they're not described, how do you think we're supposed to interpret them? We interpret the symbols with symbols. If the symbol is not described for us, how do we interpret them? Well, you look to the immediate context of the passage, like we do for anything else. Then you step back, you look at the broader context of the passage. And then guess what, brothers and sisters? You look back to the Old Testament. There are at least, at minimum, 400 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And so guess what? A lot of the numbers that we're going to see symbolized in the book of Revelation are spoken of already in the Old Testament. And so if you want to know what they mean, you don't just close your eyes and throw a dart at a board and figure it out. You look back to the Old Testament. Oftentimes it will tell you what the symbols mean. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to see Scripture drives our interpretation of Scripture. Right? Not any, for, any foreign hermeneutic that we impress upon the text. Right? Scripture drives our understanding of the symbols and of the pictures. And so, brothers and sisters, I say this to you. It is we who take the book of Revelation literally. It is we who take it literally. And because we take it literally, we interpret it symbolically the way the author intended for us to interpret it. Let us not make the same mistake, brothers and sisters, that the apostles did in Mark chapter 8. Do you remember that in our study? There was the feeding of the 4,000, if you recall. And then the Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign. And what does he say to them? Right? I'm not giving you a sign. He hops in the boat with the apostles and they go on their merry way. And then he begins to teach the apostles, doesn't he? And what does he say to them? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. And how do the apostles interpret that? Literal approach, don't they? They start bickering and arguing amongst themselves about not bringing bread upon the boat. Let us not do that to the book of Revelation. Let us not do that. Right? They got it wrong because they interpreted Jesus' words literally when they were meant to be symbolic. They were meant to be figurative, to teach some other truth. He just used a symbol to do it by. And so going forward, brothers and sisters, just as he rebukes them, he says to them, right, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, right, do you not perceive and understand? Right, we must humble ourselves as we gather together and read this book each week and pray that God would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we would not misunderstand or misapply God's Word. This takes us then to our second point that I want us to see. After looking at the nature of the book, let us look at the intended audience of the book. So this is our second point, the audience. Now we see that there is actually a chain of communication here, don't we? We're told this is a revelation of Christ that was given to him by God. And so God gives it to Christ, the mediator, who gives it to the angel, who gives it to John, who gives it to whom? The servants. Here's that same word, doulos. Right? Servant or slave. He's talking about giving it to believers. It's written, in fact, though, 
in particular to these seven churches, isn't it? This is what you'll read in verse 11 of chapter 1. Right? John is told this, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't have to tell you that there are more than seven churches in Asia Minor at this time. But here is where symbolism comes into play. Right? The number seven is chosen for a particular reason. This is why I said earlier, I think in Sunday school, the number seven is used 54 times in the book of Revelation. It is a flashing light to you saying, look at the meaning of this number. Right? Look at the meaning of this number. And so, how do we understand the number seven? How are we to understand it? Well, as we've always been doing, I'm saying, let's go back to Scripture. Let's look at what Scripture tells us the number seven is indicative of or symbolizes. Where's the first place that we see the number seven in Scripture? Genesis 1 and 2, don't we? (laughs) That was rhetorical. (laughs) Genesis 1 and 2. And what does day seven do? It brings creation to completion. It brings creation to its completion. And so, brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons why we see throughout all the Scripture, seven is constantly being used as a number of completion and fullness and totality. Let me give you just two quick examples of this. In Leviticus chapter 4, verse 6, uh, we're told that the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of it um, seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. He's to dip his finger in blood, sprinkle it seven times. Now, let me ask you, why seven? Why, why not just once? Isn't once good enough? What about three times? Maybe six times? No, seven. Why? Well, let us understand the context of the book. Let us understand the context of, of Leviticus chapter 4. What's going on there? It's talking about making an atoning sacrifice for the unintentional sins of the people so that they would be forgiven and be in right standing with God. And so he's to dip his finger in, sprinkle it seven times, which symbolizes complete cleanness for the people of God. Now here, in in that particular text, what do we see? It's used both literally and figuratively at the same time. It can be used both ways at the same time. He literally dips his finger. He literally does it seven times. But it symbolizes something greater than just doing this seven times. But it also can be used just figuratively. We see this in Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 21. We read that the Lord says this to Israel. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Why not a hundredfold? Why sevenfold? Brothers and sisters, if we are interpreting Scripture with Scripture, if we understand the symbol, then we'll be able to determine, well, he says sevenfold because he's saying, if you don't walk in my statutes, if you continue to rebel against me, Israel, you will suffer complete and total chastisement from the Lord. That is why he uses sevenfold and not a hundredfold or twofold. And so we see in a book of symbols, yes, there are literal seven churches that this book is written to. But yet the number seven is chosen to represent the complete church, the whole church, right? the fullness of the church, the, the church universal. 
for every believer that has lived from the time of John writing this until the return of Christ. Now, the church at the end of the first century was dealing with persecution. But we said in our Sunday school lessons, it wasn't programmatic persecution, was it? And we demonstrated that because we said in the year 112, the governor Pliny writes to the emperor Trajan and says, how are we to deal with these Christians? So what we know is there was no law in the books. There was no like, this is how you are to handle Christians. Right? Pliny's asking, he doesn't know, he wants an answer from the emperor. And so this book has been written to encourage these seven churches, right, that as they suffer persecution, uh, what God's plan is for them, but also what this book is written to do is to notify them and saints going forward that persecution is going to continue. It's going to continue to progress and in fact, it's going to continue to fearsome, right? The persecution that the church will suffer slowly over time is going to intensify. And so he is writing this to the whole church, the church universal, to tell us how we are to behave and carry ourselves in the midst of this trial. Right? That's what we need to see. John, in part, is doing the same thing in the book of Revelation that Paul does in Acts 14.22. If you remember, Paul there is talking to the saints and he says this, that he was strengthening the souls of the the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations you will enter the kingdom of God. That's the same thing the book of Revelation is about. John is writing to these churches to tell them, I want to encourage you, brothers, stand tall in the face of persecution because through tribulation you will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is what he's saying. That is what he's saying. He's cautioning. He's warning the saints of every generation to remain a faithful witness on this planet so long as you are here. And that is the job of every single one of you here today. No matter what goes on in your life, no matter what struggles you deal with, what persecution you may endure, you are to remain a faithful witness of Jesus Christ upon this earth. That is what it's saying. That is what it's saying. He's telling the church and the church beyond, do not compromise. Do not compromise. Do not give in to this world's system. Do not reject Christ out of fear of what the world will do to you, but rather remain a faithful witness in the midst of it all. That's the message of the book. And doesn't it sound a lot like what we even see going on today? There's a lot of compromise going on today, isn't there? A lot of compromise in the preaching that's going on from pulpits. A lot of compromise in bringing idolatrous practices into church in order to appease sinners and and be liked and be friendly with the world. But God is telling these churches in the first century, you are to remain pure. And He's telling every single one of us that today as well. He's saying that to us all. He's telling us, brothers and sisters, return to your first love. He's saying to us, do not be enticed by the teachings of Balaam. Do not be seduced by Jezebel. Do not soil your garments. He's telling us, Do not be lukewarm. And if you are, you need to repent and return to your first love. For yours is the paradise of God. But to the message of those who depart the faith, the message to those who abandon Christ, reject Him, forsake Him, the message is, you are in danger of judgment. For Christ will return soon. 
This takes us to our third point, which is time frame. I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this might be our, our longest message. Takes us to our third point, time frame. Now, brothers and sisters, what I want us to see is that there is much that is made about two phrases in these first three verses. And first, in chapter one, excuse me, chapter one, uh, verse one, that phrase in verse one, the things that must soon take place, must soon take place. Right? That that's one phrase. The other phrase is for the time is near. Right? There's there's much made about those two phrases. Now we've addressed prior in our study of the Olivet Discourse how we are to interpret these kind of this kind of language, but we'll I'll repeat it briefly here today. So we want to say at the outset, yes, yes, this book was written for the church in the first century, and to a large degree, everything that's written in this book was experienced by the first century church. No problem with that. No problem with that at all. But what we can't do is we can't read more into these two phrases than what is intended. We can't read more into these two phrases than what is Remembering that since the, the resurrection of Christ, we have been in the last days. And that's been 2,000 years, brothers and sisters. Right? The author to the Hebrews 1.1, For God spoke by His prophets, but in these last days He speaks to you by His Son, Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, we were in the last days. Or think about even the author to the book of Revelation, John, who likewise writes 1 John. Hear what, what he says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And so what I'm trying to get you to see is if, if must soon take place and time is near, has to mean that it's exhausted right there in first century and can't mean anything else beyond that, then what in the world does the last hour mean? Right? What in the world does the last hour mean? Right? This is not a new concept for us when dealing with the language of imminence. In prophetic speech, we need to see this, the end is always imminent. In prophetic speech, Christ is always just about to come. He's, he's just on the cusp. He's almost there. That's how it always is in prophetic speech. What does Paul say? Romans 16, verse 20. Listen to this one. The God of peace will soon, there's that word soon, crush the head of the serpent. The God of peace will soon crush the head of the serpent. It's been 2,000 years. What did soon mean there? And so, brothers and sisters, I just want us to see, right, that I have, we have no problem saying, absolutely, this, this happened in this time period, in this time frame. They experienced these things. Just as we could say, yes, in a very real sense, Christ has already crushed the head of the serpent. He was bound when Christ came. Right? He was defeated upon the cross. And He continually is being defeated as the Gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. And God's elect are being saved. But yet, it's not complete. When Christ returns in the second advent, that is when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. That is when ultimate defeat will come. And so, brothers and sisters, this is how we have to view time references in Scripture. Especially prophetic time references. We have to see them as already, but not yet. 
They've been inaugurated. They have begun, but they are not yet fulfilled. They are not yet exhausted. They will continue to persist. These things that are written in the book of Revelation are going to continue to persist. They're going to continue to happen. Which means what? For the saints here today, that you yourselves must be ready. You yourselves must be ready to deal with the book of Revelation is telling us is going to occur. That we must be those who are on our knees daily, crying out to God that He would grant to us discernment. And that He would give us to strength to Strength to not be overcome by satanic and evil forces that look to overthrow us. For what will one day be fulfilled had already begun and was experienced in the first century. This leads me to our our final and our fourth point this morning, which is blessing. When you read verse 3, brothers and sisters, please look with me there. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. When you read those words, how can you not be excited to come and to read the book of Revelation? How can you not? We have an explicit promise from God that as we read it and as you hear it, you will be blessed. In fact, brothers and sisters, because this isn't just for the first century church, but it's for all saints everywhere, I tell you, every Sunday that we get here together and we go through the book of Revelation and it's read and you hear it, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. Now, understand, it's not a de facto blessing. Nothing special in my vocal cords or anything. I don't communicate a blessing to you. But rather, what it's meaning, as John will go on to say, is this. He says, blessed are those who hear and what? And keep what is written for the time is near. I also want to say though, if, if these words are true, then I think it's, it's hard to take the majority of the book to be future. Right? If these words are true, if there's a blessing upon reading the entirety of this book, then the first three chapters can't be the only chapters that are for us, okay? Alright, here's another reason though that I want you to see that we have to see that the entirety of this book is for the Christian. These are all things that we are going to continually experience throughout the church age. This is why, brothers and sisters, we all need to know the book. We all need to hear the book. We all need to read the book. We all need to be blessed by the book. We all need to follow and obey all that is contained within this book. There is a blessing for us. Right? There are ethical and moral implications that God is giving us. Not only are we to read and hear, but now you are to go and do. For the saints living in the first century, what God is saying to them is, you are going to suffer Roman persecution. You will be persecuted. You'll be persecuted by the, the Israelites as well. Not only Roman persecution, but the Israelites. Right? You may lose your life. You may be imprisoned. All these things might happen to you. But remain faithful until the end. Continue confessing the name of Christ and you will be with Him in glory. Right? Continue to read and hear the book for in it and by it you will be blessed. Right? You will be strengthened in your faith. You will, as long as you allow it to dwell richly in you, you can walk in all boldness. So no, no matter what Rome or the Jews might do to you, it does not matter for Christ is your inheritance. Right? Heaven is your home. Right? That's what He's saying. This is why Jesus can say to the church in Sardis, In chapter 3, verse 5, the one who conquers 
will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out from the book of life. But I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the same is true for every one of you here today. We need to hear this book. And so, brothers and sisters, as we draw to a close, I call upon us all right, to be more than conquerors, be more than overcomers with Christ. Right, let us be those who put into practice the words of this book. Let us be obedient saints. For we can say that the time is near. The time is near. Let us be obedient to the words as John tells us in verse 2. For these words bear witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's telling us this book is about Christ. This book is about His church. His bride. This church is about who Christ is. Why He came the first time. Why He is coming again. What we are to do as we await our Lord's arrival. Right? This book is a testimony of the glory and the grace of Christ in this present evil age. And so may we be a people who are meditating upon the words of this book. May we be a people who are swift to do that is all contained therein. Believing that God will bless and sanctify His church. While at the same time, while we await the arrival of our Lord, calling on people everywhere to come to Christ while there is still time and to take from Him the water of life without price. And it's without price because it was purchased already by Christ. And Christ gives it freely to all who come to Him by faith. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the book of Revelation. What a What a a book that is so uh, needed in our own day today. Uh, As we see how Christians in other lands are are persecuted and, and tortured and killed for the faith, Lord, we pray that they would hear the message of this book. How deeply and badly we all need it. For Father, we confess that oftentimes we stumble and we fall. But we pray, Lord, that as we study in this book, that, Lord, it would, it would motivate us to continue to get back up, to run the race and to fight the fight unto the very end, to the praise and the glory of Your name. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.